I think one of the main appeals of Go is that you don't really need to think about security as much as with other languages. Go is a memory-safe language, unless I'm mistaken, and the compiler is never going to let you do stupid stuff like create an array that is too small and then you know write stuff that goes out of it. It's just not possible. So it eliminates a whole lot of bug classes, which we call memory corruptions. It's just not going to happen. You cannot do this to yourself in Go. And it means that all the old school buffer overflows that plagued all the C and C++ programs for dozens of years are not going to ever happen in the Go language. It doesn't mean that the program is going to be like perfectly safe from any security issues, but the issues are not going to be related to, oh, I made a programming mistake and uh, there is a bug in my program, it's going to be exploited. It's going to be more related to design issues. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the release of Sourcegraph 4.0 and the Starship event just a few weeks behind us, it is super clear that Sourcegraph is becoming not just code search, but a full-on code intelligence platform. And I'm here with Joel Cortler, product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, this move from code search to code intelligence is a really big deal. How would you explain this feature, Code Insights, if you're just talking to folks in the hallway track of your favorite conference? Um, I would really start with the technical because before I was product manager, I used to be an engineer as well. And it's really cool and exciting just to be able to say, we're gonna turn your code base into a database. And the structured language that you need to interact is just the ability to write a code search. You know, literal search, that's totally fine. Regular expression, you know, that'll give you a few more advanced options, even a structural search. But the number of long tail possibilities it unlocks, truly the journey of building this product was just saying, well, we've just unlocked, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. We got to figure out some immediate use cases so we can start to, you know, invest in this product, build it and sell it. But we're only getting started in terms of the number of uses that we're uncovering for it. The story I told you about discovering like version tracking turned out to be a really important use case that wasn't even on our roadmap six months prior to discovering that as we were already planning to launch this product until we talked to enough folks, realized this was a problem and then found, well, oh, that's like a simple regular expression capture group that you can just plug right in because we really built this system to not limit the power of what we built. We don't want to give you like three out of the box templates and you can only change like one character or something. It's truly like the templates are there to hold your hand and get you started. But if you can come up with anything you'd want to track in your code base, you can do that with Code Insights. I love it. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you. Living inside your code base, your code base is now a queryable database thanks to Sourcegraph. This opens up a world of possibilities for your code and the intelligence you can gain from it. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. The link will be in the show notes. See how the teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Again, this link is in the show notes. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from all around the Go community. Check out our back catalog at gotime.fm. There you'll find the most popular episodes, our favorites, and a request form so you can let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to our friends at Fly.io, host your app servers close to your users, no ops required. Learn more at Fly.io. Okay, here we go. 
Hello, everyone who is joining us today on a Wednesday of the recording. We normally record on a Tuesday, but we have a very special guest, so we need to make a very special event about that. Ian is my co-host today. Hi, Ian. Hey, how you doing, Natalie? Good. I'm very excited to have Ivan today join us. Yeah. Ivan Kwiatkowski, also known on Twitter as Justice Rage. You are a senior security researcher at Kaspersky. Yes. Hello. Very happy to be here. Indeed. So I work in the threat intelligence field and my daily work involves looking at malware and writing reports about it. Basically, the activity that I'm involved in is uh, trying to figure out what the attackers are up to, what kind of tools they're using, methodologies, what types of victims they are after. And then, you know, we write stuff about it and our customers read our reports and then it allows them to figure out whether or not this group or this group is likely to attack them or not, depending on you know, what type of information that they are after, and if so, how they may defend from those attacks you know, by knowing more about the type of malware that they use, the type of attack vectors that they typically favor, and so on. So really, I spend my day in IDA Pro most of the time, and sometimes as well, I do give out trainings for reverse engineering, either in universities or for our customers as well. And there is a very cool video that has two parts of you reverse engineering a malware written about a year ago that was written in Go, actually. Absolutely. And that was from the SolarWinds attack. Exactly. This specific example comes from the SolarWinds incident, uh, which I'm pretty sure that most uh, listeners will be aware of because it was such a high media impact case. To make a quick summary about it, what happened was a company called I always get dogs mixed up. I think the name of the company is SolarWinds and then the product is Orion IT, but maybe the other way around. Like I do really get confused about this all the time. I think you wait. the way you have it is right. Okay, great. That was really a 50-50 chance there. Anyway, this company got attacked, but it wasn't attacked for the information that it had because it was just a software company, which in itself had little value as an intelligence target. But the thing was that it had a high number of high profile customers. And these customers uh, were you know, U.S. Uh, government entities or big companies uh, in the field. And what the attackers did was they were able to compromise the software uh, build chain and they were able to insert their own code inside of the uh, software that was then pushed to customers. And using this, they were able to create a backdoor that would be automatically deployed at all SolarWinds' customers. And... Then, you know, maybe uh, two weeks or three weeks later, because this uh, very stealthy attack had a very long uh, sleeping time, it, had, it stayed dormant for a while to make sure it would remain very stealthy. But after a while, then it would start connecting to the C2 server. And then for all the targets that were deemed interesting by the attackers, they would receive a second stage payload that would allow them to get into the network and then collect intelligence and whatnot. So the, first, the very first stage of the attack was uh, just uh, some modification of the code of the original program. This part was written in .NET, but then the second part, which is called Sun Shuttle, was actually written in Go language. So it was, uh, for me, like the first time I was getting involved in reverse engineering for the Go language. The learning curve was a little steep, but then again, I kind of used this as a learning experience, but also as an example in future reverse engineering courses for other people that might be interested in learning how to, well, how to reverse engineer Go programs, but also, I think, if you are a Go enthusiast, reverse engineering can allow you to get to know more about how the language actually works under the hood, which I think is also very interesting from a software development point of view. So that's one like famous example of Go malware. Are there other famous ones written in Go that you can think of off the top of your head? Yeah. So 
From the same incident, one of the companies that was uh, breached through the SolarWinds incident was uh, Mendiant, now uh, belongs to Google. And they were the ones that actually detected that there was something wrong in their network and reported it. And so kudos to them, really a great job on figuring out that uh, something was wrong. But one of the things that the attackers were very interested in was getting access to the tool set that Mendiant was using for their own penetration testing and red teaming engagements. And it so happens that the tools that they were using were actually written in Go language, which I think is really interesting from a uh, an analyst perspective. So it's kind of, I think there's an interesting discussion to have about why they chose this uh, language for their own offensive tools. There are a number of all the projects on GitHub, uh, which uh, I can probably, uh, I can think of one called Stowaway on the top of my head, which has been uh, also reused and uh, modified by some uh, threat actors. We'll add a link to that in the show notes. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Sure. I'd say networking tools is really something that uh, proxies the stuff uh, in and out of a network goes between protocols and that kind of stuff. It's written in Go language. Pretty annoying to reverse engineer because it's a number of a lot of Go routines you know, talking to each other. Very hard to figure out how it's architectured. And another example I can think about is I'm not 100% sure, but I do believe that a commercial backdoor called Brutratel, uh, which is a big competitor or a new competitor maybe to uh, Cobalt Strike which places an enormous emphasis on evading detection and being able to you know, slip through EDR solutions, etc., is also written in the Go language, I do believe. But uh, I would have to double check that. So these are examples of uh, malware families written in Go language. And I think that uh, over time, we're going to see more and more of them. Why do you think we're going to see more and more? Is there a specific reason? You mentioned that they were hard to reverse engineer. Is that part of it or all of it? Or Yeah. There are a few reasons. The first reason I think is probably related to the ease of use for the uh, developers. I don't mean that uh, Go is like easier to program than other languages, but the fact that it generates statically built executables, you know, binaries that are self-contained that do not need any additional libraries, is kind of very comfortable for attackers. Like you know, they create their their backdoor, they send it to the victim, or you know, they deploy it at the victim one way or the other, and then it just works, right? And you don't have to think about you know, is this DLL present on the system, or do I have to pull in additional libraries, etc. So this is something that makes running programs very easy on uh, victim machines where you do not control the environment. A long time ago, like maybe ten years ago, it was kind of a problem because. You cannot send binaries that are two or three megabytes big to victims. You know, if your attack vector is, uh, you know, infected PDF or infected Word documents, then you know you cannot really send over email a PDF that ends up being five megabytes big because you know, back in, back in the day it would be rejected or maybe you know the victim, uh, you know, has some limit on their mailbox or maybe they had a slow connection that uh, is not going to be able to retrieve that binary in Europe or in the US uh, in the Western world. It used to be fine, but you know, if you think about victims that are in third world countries where the internet access is not as good, then it used to be some real, a real issue for attackers. Now that you know, the internet connectivity is pretty much, well, at least way better in most parts of the world than having backdoors that are you know, 5 or 10, maybe 20 megabytes is really not that much of an issue anymore, I think. Then second, a very good reason for using Go as an offensive language is going to be that reverse engineering is difficult, which I will get back to. But also all these standard tools that we as defenders tend to use in order to figure out quickly if a program is malicious or is not, tend to kind of break with Go language. The reason for this, and it ties into the discussion of why you know, reverse engineering Go is annoying for us, is that Go tends to really do its own thing. Right? The assembly it generates really does not look like 
any other assembly. It's not like C or it's not like C++ or Delphi that kind of tend to like look like distant cousins or even brothers in some cases. Go really does things its own way. And all the automated methods for analyzing code statically or all the maybe uh, signatures you can recreate for Go language, etc. But all the old tools that would try to recognize specific patterns in code are not going to work because the code generated by Go just looks like, like nothing you've seen before. So that's one reason. And you know, the final reason is reverse engineering. Uh, it's really difficult for us because the constructs that are generated by the Go compiler tend to be very unfamiliar to us. And so the learning curve, I would not say it's that steep. Like uh, you, know, uh, you mentioned, Natalie, that I had uh, released a few videos about it. I think you know by the end of the videos, you can have like a rough idea of how to approach those programs. So it's not that like it's not like a, an obstacle that is insurmountable. It's something that eventually you will be able to figure out. But when you've been working on C or like similar looking code as C for ten years, and sometimes you know, learning something new is not something that uh, you are easily going to do because you are you have your comfort zone and then you have to like discover something different and maybe you don't like to do this and maybe you have you know 10 easy malware written in C that are waiting in the in the test list and maybe you're going to work on those first because it will allow you to end your day uh, earlier next Friday right <laughs> so you you kind of mentioned that there's assembly differences that make it hard to recognize are there any like specific things that you've learned about go under the hood from that you know like that differ from C like how functions are called and the assembly or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the major differences, it's not really about the assembly itself. It's about, you know, the static aspect of the executables is the fact that all the functions are pulled inside the final binary. And then you have this big program that's two megabytes or three megabytes big just for a print hello world. And now it's getting a bit better. I think IDA Pro has made significant improvements in its later versions, but Maybe two to three years ago, when you were opening a Go program, you would have nothing recognized at all. Maybe you would be able to pull a few plugins here and there or Python scripts that may or may not work. And in that case, if you were lucky, you might have been able to create signatures for the well-known functions and maybe start from there. But it was really a huge ordeal. Now it's a bit better. So at least you are starting to get pretty reliably all the references to all the known functions. Beyond this, the calling convention is... I'm not going to say it's weird because like it's I mean it's as valid as any other one. It's just not the same one that we are used to seeing. The main difference is that considering that Go can return multiple return values, then you cannot you know have the same uh, system as we had to uh, as we had before. Like for instance, in the C program, the return value goes into EAX and that's it, right? No difference. I mean the AX register of your CPU. When it comes to Go language, if you have three, four, or you know maybe more return values, uh, you know typically one return value and also some error objects, mm. if I'm not mistaken, then you cannot put all that into a single CPU register. It just doesn't work, and so you tend to get values that, well, in the past, you would have all the arguments being passed through the stack, not through pushes, but direct moves from the, you know, from the value into the stack directly. So the instruction was not push, which uh, these assemblers they are, you know, automated analysis tools, they just like to see push, 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 and then call that. That's something that is easy for, to, for them to recognize. But Go would just do move this on the stack at this place, move this on the stack at this place, and then you go into another function, it knows 
because the compiler knows where the stuff ends up. So it figures it out. But you know, the IDA Pro looks at this and is like, oh, what the hell is this? This memory has never been initialized before. I cannot show this to you. That was an issue. And then the return values were given back exactly the same. So the program would just move back all the return values onto the stack as well at places that it would be able to figure out later. But then when you look at IDA Pro, then you know, it sees, okay, values being moved on the stack. You go back into the calling function and then you see references to the stack as well, but you know the offsets are going to be different because since you are returning from a function, you know, things have shifted a little bit, and so the offsets are not well do not work well anymore. And so this is like another issue that you have to face, like figuring out where your return values go was like it still is, by the way, a terrible nightmare. And finally, there is this uh, other key difference, and uh, this difference is the fact that usually the C compiler and other similar compilers will tend to reserve some space on the stack for specific local variables. And this tends to be very reliable. It doesn't move too much. So when you have some variable in C, you know, it gets used some part of the program. It's in one place on the stack and then that's it. And if the program needs another local variable later on, then there's just another space allocated for this in the stack. And the Go compiler tends to be very smart about these things. And what it does is if it sees that, you know, there used to be a variable at some place on the stack and it's not used anymore, then it will feel like it's totally okay to reuse the same space to store something else later, which makes total sense. I mean, do not use more memory than you need to, right? Like the Go compiler is totally right in doing this. But for me, it's really, really a problem because what I do in IDA Pro is I try to figure out where the local variables are on the stack. I name those positions by saying, okay, this is the error variable. This is the, I don't know, this is the integer that represents an, an, an iteration count or whatever. And I name or rename everything I can. And then eventually stuff starts to make sense because I know what represents what on the stack and I know what the variables are, etc. But the thing is, if one position on the stack does not consistently represent a specific variable, then I cannot rename things anymore, right? There's just no way for me to do this. And the tools that we have, such as IDA, I'm pretty sure Ghidra is going to function the same way. It's not going to allow me to say, okay, up to this point, this variable should be named like this. And then from there on, then it should have another name and then yet another, etc. So this is like a very, very difficult thing for us is that you know, trying to track down variables and return values, even arguments is something extremely complex. And basically this is the normal flow of how you analyze a program. You try to figure out what the variables are, you try to look at the functions and how they are called, what they return and that kind of stuff. And just, you know, doing those simple things that would be the basic operations and building blocks of trying to understand what is going on in some random program are in themselves extremely complex operations due to like optimizations that were performed by the Go compiler. Now, the last thing I can mention is that since version probably 16.1 or mm -hmm. something like this, or 1.16, I guess, in Go, the calling convention actually changed. And they do things even smarter now, which is pass some arguments through the registers and not through the stack. So it, for me, it doesn't change that much. Actually, it makes things a little bit easier because at least you know, I know argument one is in ECX, argument two is in EDX from memory. It might not be that one, but you know, generally it's going to be at a, in a fixed register, at least for the two first arguments. And so I know where they are. That's way better. But you know, overall, this doesn't change the, this bigger game of renaming things, which is not possible anymore. And then when it comes to the quick and easy mode, which is you know, getting my super expensive IDA Pro license that comes with a decompiler, then you know, I just uh, open a program, press F5, and hopefully I can read whatever is going on in the program. Well, that just doesn't work because you know, the constructs that are generated by the Go compiler, especially I think when it comes to function calls, 
is totally alien to IDA. And you know, every time you try to decompile code that uh, comes from the from the Go language, you just end up with something that has that makes absolutely no sense. Because again, IDA tries to recreate pseudo C code, and pseudo C code has just no way of representing concepts like multiple return values or that kind of stuff. So this is the way that Go breaks everything that we <laughs> hold dear in the reverse engineering world. For anybody who didn't watch the video or is not familiar with how to do reverse engineering, I can, in simple words, say that roughly you look at the instructions and then you try to kind of see entry point is usually main. So this is probably function main. This is one thing that's being returned. And then you kind of try to, to follow that. Basically, this is what you do when you reverse engineer. Yeah, actually, maybe I can say a few words about what reverse engineering is for people that uh, you know might not be familiar with it. The general idea is that we try to understand what a program does, even though we do not have access to the source code. Like this is the typical case for malware because you know we cannot call up malware authors and tell them, okay, please show me the code because I don't really understand what this what's going on there. They just <laughs> we don't know where they are. They don't want to be found and they don't want to give us their code anyway. So what we have to do then is like we have no other solution but to look at the program and see what instructions the program is sending to the CPU and then try to figure out from there based on those instructions that are working at the CPU level, what the higher level line of code that might have generated this type of instruction might have been. So this is not really, it's not entirely a guessing game uh, because it's sort of a mostly exact science, but also it's a very unnatural operation to perform because this CPU language was really made for CPUs and machines. And for us humans, like it's extremely difficult to understand. Like it really, it's really not something natural for human beings to read that those instructions. It doesn't make sense to us. And it really requires a lot of effort to figure out what the programmer intent was just by looking at those instructions. And so this is why actually we are looking for reverse engineers. I mean, not just at Kaspersky, just the whole industry is looking for people that are able to do this because it's something that is that most people find unpleasant. And I have to say myself, I do find it unpleasant most of the times. But you know, at the end of the day, when I I am able to figure out what was actually happening in the program. I feel very good about myself. And so this is the reason why you know, I still do this job. But overall, this is kind of a difficult thing to do. And it's kind of painful and uh, takes a lot of time to be able to figure out even the simplest programs. Especially when the tooling is not even there for you. <laughs> yes. Just for some reference, like the ratio between lines of, say, go to assembly. Do you know what that ratio is? Just like a rough, it's like one to a hundred, one to a thousand, one to... It's a good question. It would depend on the complexity of the line. You no, know, in Go, I'm pretty sure that you can do function calls that are chained together in a pretty like in long lines. Maybe I'm not sure if it's like the compliant to the official Go styling uh, code or something like this. But if you were to do this, then uh, you would have a. I mean, let's take it from the other way. If you have some normal-looking Go code, like a "Hello World" or something like this, it would probably translate into 10 or 15 lines of assembly. So I'd say the default would be 15 lines of assembly for one line of. Uh, actual Go code. But then if you get up into lines of code that are a bit more complex or that check or that return multiple uh, return values or function calls, then this can bit, get a bit bigger, but this is still going to be the right ballpark. Okay. Yeah. That gives me a good idea. What is it for other languages? Like, is it a lot more? Is it a lot less? Is it roughly the same? I would say it's uh, probably going to be mostly the same. C++ tends to be very, uh, like tends to generate a lot of codes. So it's very comparable to uh, to Go. C might be a bit more direct, like the translation between C and assembly is going to be a, a bit more, how would I say it in English? The 
correspondence between uh, the C code and the assembly is going to be a bit more direct. That's it. But otherwise, I would say this is uh, like a common ratio for languages. The problem is not that Go generates more assembly. The problem is that the assembly it generates like <laughs> is not the one that we are used to seeing, and you know, we don't like that. Well, interesting to see if in one or two years from now it will be more supported and more pattern recognition working. Well, that's the thing, right? It kind of depends on the attackers. Like, if we do end up seeing more and more Go tools out there in the wild, then uh, there is going to be pressure on the uh, tool authors like IDAF, like Ghidra, etc., to implement better detection and you know better support for those languages. I'm pretty sure that since last time I tried using a decompiler on some Go program, IDAF has made improvements and it's probably not as broken as it used to be. But if we keep seeing offensive tools written in Go, then I'm pretty sure that the tools will get better. We will still have to figure out how the Go assembly works, especially if it changes again in the future. But overall, at least the support in the last years has improved tremendously. And I think it will continue to do so also in the future if there is a need to. And I'm, I would guess that uh, Go is only going to become more prevalent when it comes to offensive software. Because of all the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Some specific questions. You mentioned that you were kind of thinking out loud about the behavior you see in IDA Pro when you were looking at the Go code that you loaded there or the binary of it that you loaded there. So some I'm going to describe two things that you mentioned. Tell me how you, you think if it's good, if it's bad, how it compared to other languages, just as an interesting kind of point. It can get too deep, so we'll try to keep it at a slightly higher level for everybody who's out of the who's kind of hearing about this and not very well familiar. So for example, you mentioned that skipping to the next instruction lands you in another place in the code of the CPU instruction. Yeah, exactly. So this is something that was super surprising to me, which is when I reverse engineer a program, so you can look at it statically in IDA Pro, which means you display the instructions and you read them like a book, or there's another approach, which is not like opposite, but maybe more like a complement to it, which is to look at the program inside the debugger. You know, debuggers, just, they just work exactly the same as in the software development world. Like you execute the code instruction by instruction or line by line, and you can see the state of the various variables. Except for us, you know, we don't have the source code, so it's not lines of code, it's just assembly instructions. But we can still watch them execute one by one, and we can see the CPU registers getting updated, etc. And when I was doing this with uh, Go programs, it turned out that uh, I was very surprised to see that sometimes I would step from one instruction to the next, and I would end up at a totally random place somewhere else in the program. And eventually, like by doing some Google searches, etc., I figured out that it is actually the, um, I don't know if it's the Go scheduler that is involved in there, probably it is, but there is a garbage collector that is in charge of, you know, freeing the variables that are not used anymore. And sometimes you know, it takes priority and starts, you know, freeing stuff. And then once it's done running, it takes you back where you were in the program. And so this is something that is super jarring for us as reverse engineers, because we are looking at a very specific place in the program. We are you know, frowning, looking very concentrated and focused, because we are looking super serious. And then you know, we press uh, F7, F7, you know, we step into the, the next instruction. And suddenly we end up somewhere totally different, even though we didn't see any jump instruction. And suddenly it's like, oh, something is going on. What's happening with my program there? Because it's not supposed to, to just go somewhere else. Now, once I was able to figure out what was going on and understand that I just have to get out of this uh, garbage collector function, and it will take me back exactly where I used to be, and things were fine. But initially, I was, it was another one of uh, those idiosyncrasies that felt super alien to me, and that uh, like I wasn't happy about at first. So that means it's not something behavior that you see often in other languages. Oh no, it's something I had never seen before. 
I know that other languages, they do have their own garbage collectors. But when it comes to Java, we don't really have to look at the instructions because Java is compiled to bytecode. So we just read the code disassembled or decompiled maybe and get access to the, the something that looks like the source code. It may be obfuscated, which means that it will be modified in a way that the variable names are not there anymore or it has been specifically engineered to be harder to read. But in that case, or for .NET or for Java, we just never have to worry about CPU instructions because they are not that relevant to the language. So Go was, for me, a big surprise on that level because this was the first time I had to encounter like, debugging a program and being uh, you know, taken far away somewhere without even asking to. And you know, it kind of happens on a regular basis too. And then one more question about another behavior that was uh, peculiar that you pointed out that at some point when you had two following instructions and they were using the same variable, you didn't see the return, but because it was right the one after or before. I'm not sure exactly if I'm, I remember exactly the part that you refer to, but what I'm saying I noticed is, yeah, this might be one of the other ways that the compiler in Go is being very smart, which is that if you have chained function calls, it turns out, I think, that the way that arguments from one functions are returned on the stack happen to be the exact place where they would be considered as arguments for the next function. So you don't really see the data moving back and forth from the functions, it's just you, know, you have chained calls and the compiler knows that whatever was returned happens to be at the right place for the next one, etc. So one of these other things that we are used to seeing, like we see a function call, we look at the input, we look at what goes in and what goes out basically. This helps us understand what is going on. And with Go, sometimes you just don't see that because it's uh, hidden from you. Like uh, the complexity tends to be, well, the complexity is still there, but you know, the, all these operations are masked by the way that the stack is constructed by uh, the Go compiler, which again is a super good thing for Go programmers because it means that you don't have those memory movements that are taking place in the program that are actually not that, not that useful. And every time you have a movement that involves the memory, in a program, it, it takes a lot of time. I mean, not a lot compared to our human existence. But if you look at how a CPU works, you have the CPU that has some memory regions inside of it, which are called the registers. And then you have the RAM as well. You know, when you allocate memory in C program with a malloc or C alloc, it goes into the RAM. Or when you move something into the stack, it's also a region of memory that is on the, inside the RAM, you know, the RAM stick of the computer. Every time the CPU has to talk to the RAM sticks, there has to be an electrical signal that goes from the CPU through a bus to the motherboard. And the motherboard understands that it has to request the specific region of data to the RAM sticks. And you, know, you have to, to have the response that goes back the same way, converted into electrical signals. So it's pretty fast, of course, when it comes to, it's probably in the ballpark of microseconds or milliseconds. But compared to just the CPU talking to itself, or you know, moving stuff inside of the physical area that is the CPU, or just not moving things at all because they are already in the right place, then you get performance increases that I think are pretty significant, especially considering you know, the amount of function calls that you have in the program. It's very interesting to hear about this from the perspective of somebody who's kind of poking this out from the outside. No, that's, this makes me want to dive more into the reverse engineering just to learn more about <laughs> the internals. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by my friends and potentially your friends too at Fire Hydrant. 
And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. And Robert, there are several options out there for incident management, but what is it that makes Fire Hydrant different? The reason that we think that Fire Hydrant is is onto something is because we're meeting companies really where they are. We face the same problems that every company in the industry that is building and releasing software is also facing. So where you want people to be able to sign up for Fire Hydrant and immediately be able to kick off an incident using the best practices that we've built and we've experienced and have gathered through the other amazing customers that use our tool. It really is a very quick time to value. And we want people to have a long jump from where they are to where they want to be in incident management. I love it. Thank you, Robert. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all fire hydrant features included. There's no credit card required to sign up. They are making it too easy to get started. So check them out at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. So let's maybe move to a bit of a higher level now. Go's community is kind of big on consistency. You know, we have like the linters that yeah. keep everything consistent. Go format keeps everything consistent. Does that actually help with reverse engineering at all, you think? Just the the only one way to do thing and or at the level that you're doing reverse engineering, do you think it doesn't matter? It's a good question. I have to say, I don't know that much about the linter itself. I have written a bit of C code myself. When I was trying to like look at assembly code and write Go at the same time, that would generate the same thing. So this is my extent of the experience with the language. And I really noticed something, which is that the Go language is super strict. I have in the past, I used the, the expression, maybe it's going to make you laugh. I was saying you know, that in Go, if you don't use the return values, then the program is uh, complaining. If you have unused variables, then the program complains again, right? And I was saying that <laughs> to me, Go feels a bit like fascist Python. Like it doesn't let you do anything that you want, except you know if it's, it follows the rules very strictly. For us, it doesn't matter too much in the sense that those checks are enforced at the compiler level, right? It's something that if the code is not compliant, then you will not get a binary at the end. So it does not add additional stuff inside the binary. And also, if there were some variable that is unused inside the program, then as you reverse engineers, we would not care, right? Because we would just consider that you know, it's not used anymore, or the, probably the programmer doesn't need it for whatever reason, and we would just move on. So for us, it doesn't really change that much, although knowing about those guarantees kind of allows us to make more informed guesses about what is going on in the program. Like for instance, when I do see a function that returns multiple return values, then I am not a Go developer, but still I am always going to assume that the last value returned is going to be the object or the first one, I don't recall, but I will have to check. But I know that since this is the normal way that people are supposed to write Go code, and since I know that the compiler is going to force people to do it, even if they don't want to, then probably I can base my hypothesis on those conventions which is actually pretty helpful in that regard. So would you say that Go is a good language to pick up for a hacker or for a researcher in security? Well, I'm not really in the business of helping attackers, you know, being more efficient at writing uh, offensive tools. But if I were to, then I guess I would guess that Go is probably a, a good language to pick up. Basically, 
anything that uh, is away from the traditional languages is going to be more annoying for us because we are less used to it. I think Rust is going to be a good choice as well. I haven't looked at Rust too much myself. I have a coworker that did and also released some videos. And uh, from what he's saying, it's like a C++, <laughs> but harder, which is a kind of a high standard to beat. <laughs> so yeah, just uh, go and Rust would be uh, my, uh, my advice there. Although it's not advice, please don't. <laughs> so if those are the kind of the new school ones, right? Go and Rust. What are like historically what? languages has everyone used on the hacking side and on the, the research side? Well, historically, everything has been used. You know, Murphy's Law, which says that if there is a, a way to misuse something, then it's going to be misused, right? And programming languages have proven time and again that law. The thing is, we are recipients of whatever the hackers are doing, right? We do not get to choose what we are going to work on. Like hackers are going to write their their tools, and they're going to choose whatever language is familiar for them or whatever language feels comfortable or whatever. And this is why we end up sometimes facing the most ridiculous stuff like uh, malware written in auto IT. I don't know if you know about this. It's like a, it's some weird scripting language that uh, is used for UI testing and basically allows you to simulate keystrokes and uh, mouse clicks. Well, it turns out people write malware with this as well. Anything that has ever been available as a programming language has been uh, one way or the other eventually been used for malware. So the thing is, this is our bane as reverse engineers, which is that we do receive malware and uh, whatever it is, we have to work on it. Because at the end of the day, our job is to figure out what was going on in that specific incident. And so it, whether it's C or C++ or it's Go or Delphi or you know, Pascal, whatever, we just have Erlang, maybe. No, Erlang. I'm pretty sure there's an Erlang malware. Whatever we receive, we have to work on. And so we cannot really afford to be picky about what languages we get interested in. We just have to be able to adapt to whatever comes because everything will come eventually. So you just mentioned right there, like you get your research is on whatever like hackers leave behind. Let that be malware or whatever. What, what other things do people leave behind? Is it just the actual binaries or like are you digging into logs and other things? Yeah, so in a typical incident scenario, then you would have people that uh, go into what we call forensics mode. They will collect all the logs, they will collect all the hard drives and try to figure out exactly what happened inside the network. They will collect you know, not just machine logs, but you know DNS logs. They will collect whatever event was uh, generated by the Windows machines. They will collect uh, you know whatever was saved by the HTTP proxy and so on. All the NetFlow, if it's available, usually it's not. Uh, usually not that much information is actually available in case of an incident. But, you know, that's someone else's problem. I'm not, I'm not an incident responder and I have enough stuff to worry about. But what I focus on is the actual malware. We do have information through the antivirus from Kaspersky that gives us information about the execution context. So we can see that, okay, this process launched this process, etc. So we have this type of information. But in a bigger incident context, then you would get a much clearer picture about everything that went on, on the, uh, in the victim's network. And this, this whole trove of information would allow you to reconstruct the whole timeline of the incident. So you, so you would see that you know, at this time you had some suspicious request on you know, some web front end, and then you would see that there is a file created at a later date on the same web server, and then you would maybe see some uh, weird suspicious request to the Active Directory server with uh, some golden ticket with a uh, Mimikatz or something. Well, those kinds of uh, lateral movement methods, etc. And at the end of the day, somewhere, some attacker would have to drop some binaries to help them either persist on the victim machine or get further into the network or deeper. 
because they will try to do whatever they can without deploying anything. Some very careful attackers will not deploy anything on disk and they will just deploy whatever program that they need inside the memory, which is very stealthy. But also if the machine happens to reboot, then you know everything that was in the memory just goes away. And so if you have no way of coming back onto the victim machine, then you know all the access that you had deployed is lost. Some very stealthy attackers will decide that they would rather lose access and leave forensic traces on a hard drive. Most of them, like 90%, 99% of them will feel like they would rather leave some kind of trace, knowing that most people don't look anyway, and then leave stuff for us to analyze later if we figure out that there was an incident and you know someone goes there, uh, collects everything, and just sends the binaries back to us. You said the incident response teams are the ones that collect all that data and, and all of that. Yeah, exactly. So we do have such teams at Kaspersky, but most cybersecurity companies will have either their internal incident responders or Swoop in. you know, a contractor that uh, they know of and that can be called at any hour of the day or the night. And that will come and, you know, uh, just uh, exactly swoop in with the big guns if uh, something weird took place. Now, it doesn't mean that we do not work in direct interaction with those teams. It means that, you know, this is their job. And then, you know, we get, we are more back office guys where, you know, we get uh, escalated some stuff and then we look into it. But most of the intelligence that we create doesn't actually come from incident response cases. I think it would be a good idea if we were able to gain more information from that uh, source as well. I think it's a very valuable one. But we work mostly on the telemetry collected by our antivirus. You know, all the samples that are suspicious or that are uploaded to the cloud for analysis. And then we can also swoop in, but you know, very much more quietly and look at all this data and see, okay, this looks interesting because you know we've never seen this before. Or it looks like some malware that we saw 10 years ago and we haven't seen since and you know, it has some modifications. And then we are interested in what happened since then, right? But it's not really, our work tends to be a bit disconnected from the actual incidents and really more focused on looking at the big data lake that we have and try to understand what is relevant inside of it. That's cool, thanks for that, that insight. From the other side of this equation, what are some tips you can give for writing a secure software for people who do Go? Or in general, if it's not specific to Go, it's also useful. Yeah, I think one of the main appeals of Go is that you don't really need to think about security as much as with other languages. Go is a memory-safe language, unless I'm mistaken, and the compiler is never going to let you do stupid stuff like create an array that is too small and then you know write stuff that goes out of it. Like it's not just not possible. So it eliminates a whole lot of bug classes, which we call memory corruptions. It's just not going to happen. You cannot do this to yourself in Go. And it means that all the old school buffer overflows that plagued all the C and C++ programs for dozens of years by now just are not going to ever happen in the Go language. It doesn't mean that the program is going to be like perfectly safe from any security issues, but the issues are not going to be related to, oh, I made a programming mistake and uh, there is a bug in my program, it's going to be exploited. It's going to be more related to design issues. Like the memory safe language does not help you implement a secure authentication scheme, for instance. It doesn't help you write a well thought out network protocol. I saw that Go really helps you with cryptography. I noticed that it's very difficult to choose algorithms that are not safe. Like by default, you can only, I don't think you can choose the algorithms in Go by, like I know you can do AES for instance, but like the cipher mode or the, those kinds of stuff tends to be, unless I'm mistaken, you know, selected by default for you and the defaults are good. So you're not going to be making those mistakes, but 
oh yeah, no, the IV, something I was working on some uh, code in uh, Go that was uh, relying on AES. I was looking at uh, trying to figure out exactly how the IV was generated and so on. I was saying that nowhere in the developer code and you know, doing some research, I noticed that it was actually Go that would by itself generate an IV for the encryption, this uh, initialization vector. And then it would append it to the uh, somewhere in the final uh, encrypted buffer. And so usually in the other languages, this is something you would have to do on your own. And this is a, like a big avenue for making mistakes. Like if you choose a, a stupid IV, like just zeros, or if you do not select one at all, then you're going to have encryption problems. Go would not let you do this. So it's very obvious to me that Go was created with security in mind, not for the developers, but by the Go creators. Like they don't want you to shoot yourself in the foot and you know, they're going to make sure that there's no way for you to do it unless you really, really want to. Even though you do have all those kinds of protections, cryptography like, can be misused. Like you know, if you choose a, a bad key, then you know, nobody's going to save you from that. If your protocol you know, doesn't work, uh, then again, you cannot be protected from it either. But I think it allows people to focus on design flaws instead of programming flaws. And this is already like a, a huge burden off the shoulders of developers. That is a very interesting insight. That's interesting. I see a lot of complaints outside of kind of the Go community, just, you know, like Hacker News about Go's choosing your defaults for like, like TLS or not letting you do certain things. But that's one I'm firmly on board with. If I don't want to, if I don't need to think about it, I don't want to. And I don't want to make the mistake. Would you be able to confidently select your defaults for TLS? I mean, I don't think I would feel comfortable doing this. Like you have to be like very well versed in cryptography to be able to make those kinds of decisions. So it's very good that Go is not making you do this, I think, in my opinion. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. Another interesting about your interest in Go, you kind of mentioned that you started using Go because malware was thrown at you, kind of. 
Yeah, exactly. So I, w- I wouldn't say that I've started using Go. I would say that I was forced to learn Go, not that I, I'm unhappy about it. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad thing. What I'm saying is that I'm not really writing Go code myself. What I did was I had assembly that was generated by the Go compiler and I was trying to make heads or tails from it. So what I did was I looked at the assembly. I was like, okay, this might be the Go code that generated this assembly. And then I opened my uh, Go IDE and I compiled my code and checked if it was the same on both ends. Also, when I start to learn about a language, when I want to reverse engineer it, I think it's super useful to write some simple programs and just compile it and see how it looks in the assembly level. You know, just create a simple, stupid C function, not C function, but a sum function that, you know, adds two integers or, you know, something that will allow you to see what types of function calls the program is using, what kind of constructs the language is generating. The things that I had to face there was, again, the Go compiler being way too smart for, for my uses. And it tends to inline all the function calls that are too simple. What I mean by this is if you have a simple function that does almost nothing and you call that function, then the Go compiler will be like, oh, this is not worth a function call. What I will do is I will take the code of all this function and put it inside the calling function. And you know, when you try to look at what a function call looks like in assembly, then this is not helping you. But the good thing is I was able to find the, the good flags and uh, for the compiler to disable opt- all optimizations and things uh, kind of worked out for me. You mentioned that IDA, and which is the main tool you're using, and the other tool are not really supporting Go. So if anybody wants to try reverse engineer to get into that, but also want to do that with Go, what would you recommend how to do that? So if you're going to reverse engineer Go programs, I still think that you don't have much choice there. So you're still going to be, you're still going to have to use either IDA Pro or Ghidra. I want to switch to Ghidra eventually, but I haven't done so uh, at the moment, so I cannot speak too much about its capabilities. I'm told that it, it's being improved at a very rapid pace, so it's probably a good choice. But when it comes to, to IDA, it got better, right? I think that a few months back, maybe a, a year now, you had uh, my good friend uh, Juan Andres Guerrero Sad from Sentinel One on the podcast and probably told you about the various plugins that he wrote to help people reverse engineering Go programs with IDA. I also contributed to his repository uh, with some script myself that I find uh, useful. But overall, even though IDA might not be perfect for the job, it's still one of the two only tools that are available for the job. So you still have to you know, work through it no matter what. The thing is, I find myself thinking that even though starting with reverse engineering Go is kind of difficult, it turns out that I find myself liking reverse engineering Go programs way more than C++ programs that tend to be extremely complicated with, uh, you know, virtual function tables and the very complex structures that represent classes and so on. Because when it comes to the Go language, it turns out that it kind of feels like a scripting language in the sense that everything ends up being a call to an API function, or a call to some function that comes from the Go standard library. And so if you are able to take a debugger and, you know, look at all the arguments after you know how to do that. But if you look at all the arguments of the Go functions that are documented, by the way, and look at the return values, then actually the meaning of the program tends to manifest itself, even though you don't really understand all the instructions that are in the middle and you cannot track you know, all the stuff going uh, here and there. So overall, like my advice for people that would like to get started with Go reverse engineering is, okay, it's going to be very different from what you are used to, But at the end of the day, I think you're going to end up liking it more than you would think because it's going to be way easier than it looks. Hmm. How about those listeners that haven't 
done any reverse engineering that want to get started. Do you have any good resources out there? I know that you personally have made some videos. You want to talk about that a little bit and anything else that would be helpful? So yeah, the videos that I put out are just uh, related to the Go language. If you're going to get into reverse engineering, I would not advise you to start with Go, not because it's going to be harder or anything, but because probably the basics of reverse engineering are going to be related to traditional C code or traditional assembly code generated by C. And so this is going to be like your base knowledge of reverse engineering. And then when you, once you are comfortable with uh, understanding what is going on with uh, the C language and you know all the uh, assembly that you see most places, then you can move on to other languages and see how they differ from others, uh, or etc. But I think C is always going to be used as a reference for other languages in the sense that when you look at assembly first, you try to understand it like you would understand C, and then if it's different, like you adapt from that. But if your baseline is going to be the Go language, if the like the the one thing you know is Go, and then you try to recognize whatever you learned uh, with Go with another language, then you're going to be into trouble because whatever you're going to see next is not going to look like anything you saw in Go. So we do have a few courses at Kaspersky, but I mean, people can check them out if they want. There are a few interesting uh, online courses as well. It's something for free, which is a beginners.re. It's a website. It used to be free. Maybe now it's behind a paywall. I'm not sure, but it used to be a big, big reverse engineering course written by some guy. And it, was, uh, it was amazing. You have a book, which is called Practical Malware Analysis. It's a bit old now, but I think it's still very much uh, up to date. It's from No Stock Press. I think uh, for beginners, it's going to be a good way to get into the field because it explains everything uh, that is going on. It provides links to the various tools that you might need, <laughs> etc. So a good resource there. And finally, if you want to approach this from the uh, fun angle, I can actually recommend extremely good Steam games that allow you to like get a feel for reverse engineering. So one of them is called Turing Complete. And this one is uh, like the pitch of this game is you're going to build your own computer. And so you start with, they give you logic gate, like a XOR gate or the electric uh, cables, basically. And based on this, you have to build a CPU component by component. And then you move on uh, with increasing levels of abstraction. So it really, it's really super helpful to understand how a program works or how a computer works. It really, it allows you to get this uh, eye-level bird's-eye view of how a CPU is constructed and how it's supposed to operate. And knowing how CPUs work is then very, very helpful when you are doing reverse engineering. And then you have other games, which are from a developer, which is called Zachtronics. And these are like weird puzzle games that are really related to computing problems. One of them is called a TIS-100. You have another one called Hexapunks, and they are dubbed the assembly games you didn't know you wanted. And it's actually a very apt description because these games have their own weird and limited assembly language, and you have to solve puzzles with them. Like you have to program some sort of small machine in order to make it do stuff. And you have to do this with assembly. And it, it forces you to use the language, which uh, like has the very super good desired side effect of making you learn how CPUs work when, or making you more comfortable with handling those uh, weird instructions by yourself. So these would be my recommendations uh, for people that want to get into it. Yeah, I'd not thought about games. That sounds, I'm going to check those out later, actually. Yeah, and actually, if you are working from a university or if you are a teacher somewhere, Zachtronics, I think the company maybe closed doors not too long ago. I think they, they are done making games or they move on to something else. But they used to have a uh, very extensive education program where if you are a university and you are doing, a, I don't know, some... Uh, 
computer science degree or something like this, you could just send them an email and they would give you access to all their games, you know, for free, basically. And you could uh, use them to teach uh, or as teaching aids. And I think it's uh, like uh, amazing of them. And also the games are really, really, really fun, I think. So <laughs> they are fun if you like assembly, which I think is a pretty biased statement on my end. But uh, like, I still do recommend them. Yeah, a lot of the things you said are like a cheat sheet for reverse engineering. It's a Lots of useful information, and I have so many more questions about specific things about Go and reverse engineering. We might have to do another episode about this because we are running out of time. <laughs> sure. Well, I can come back whenever you like. We will prepare our questions. We'll ask you about things like generics. I will have to prepare those questions as well, I guess. <laughs> but no problem. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for an unpopular opinion. So, Ivan, what is your unpopular opinion for us? Oh my god, I totally forgot about that. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> the good thing is I do have many unpopular opinions, so I'm going to like uh, give you things on the top of my head and you can tell me what you want to know more about. <laughs> for instance, I think that cyberspace is never going to be regulated. I think that NFTs are a scam. I think that there is no political will to limit the sale of cyber offense tools. That kind of stuff. Yeah, that's uh, what <laughs> I do have a lot of unpopular political opinions as well, but I don't think I want to inflict that onto you. You've been very nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think about the European rule about the USB-C until uh, standardizing USBs? Oh, I'm very, very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's uh, some pressure put on uh, some device constructors, but I've been carrying... <laughs> lots of different chargers for years and i'm super annoyed about this and you know knowing that we are going to switch to like a single usb-c for every single device makes me extremely extremely happy <laughs> another unpopular opinion i have which I can, you can add to the list is that i'm not really a big fan of apple like not at all i don't like their ecosystem uh, and i'm not going to get into this but one of the things i don't like is that people have to pay 40 bucks for like new chargers and they change chargers every time they release a new product and I'm very happy that this is going to cut off this revenue stream for them because I think this should not, never existed in the first place. What do you think about all the like the walled systems, you know, like the Google Play Store and the Apple Store and the Amazon Store? Like from a security perspective, they say it's safer. Do you agree with that? Do you? Yeah, this is a very good question. I do have very ambiguous feelings about them. I do believe that for the security, on the security perspective, it's kind of a good thing in the sense that yeah, it's another one of those safeguards that prevent people from doing stupid stuff with their devices and, you know, having to go to some friends' places or more specifically friends of my mom's places to debug computers and, you know, uninstall malware and fix the printers. Then I'm very happy when, you know, there are <laughs> protections that prevent them from doing that kind of stuff. Then again, they are not a perfect solution either. I think the Apple Store uh, in terms of security is uh, like pretty good. The Google Store the Play Store has a bad track record when it comes to hosting malware. I'm not saying that they're doing a bad job. I think it's a very, very difficult job. But the fact of the matter is there are a number of apps on the Google Play Store that turned out to maybe not be total malware, but some of them are. But uh, a lot of them are just uh, you know there to collect uh, personal data or, or that kind of stuff. So I think a better way of securing those devices is not to 
control the app stores. I think uh, created protections on the device level is probably where I would um, work. So when you look at both iOS and Android, they're doing, I think, a very good job of, or have been doing a very good job, at least in the past years, of making sure that apps would not be able to access anything just because the user clicked OK you know, way back when, when they installed the app. So I think making sure that all those personal information cannot be pulled so easily is going to be like a much better way than you know trying to police all the stores and look uh, at all those thousands of apps that are updated there every day, which I do not think that you can realistically ensure that they are always going to be um, safe. But overall, the other issue with World Gardens, which is, okay, maybe they do provide something with security, but also I feel like they take away some agency from me as a user, right? I really like to own the devices that I use and having some restrictions that tell me, oh, you cannot install this app because Google says you can't, or you can uninstall this app also because Google says you can't, is something that tends to make me extremely, extremely angry. So you mentioned a lot of unpopular opinions. Yes. The way that Twitter works for our podcast is that we take a, an unpopular opinion and then we make a vote. So there's a poll. Do people agree with you or not? And then there's a Hall of Fame for unpopular opinions and for popular unpopular opinions. So you listed several. Which one would you like us to vote on? So if I wanted to win the contest, I guess I would go with the NFT one because I know that this is something very divisive. And I think that a lot of the audience that you are reaching is going to be probably I'm not going to say that they are necessarily going to be on my side, but I think they're going to be on the A side. But I think a much more interesting question that I would be actually interested in having the, uh, the community's opinion about is the one about regulation. Like, I do believe that cyberspace is never going to be regulated. And maybe I need to say a bit more about this one, right? So that people can figure out for themselves. My opinion on this is that, you know, we have a number of high level discussions taking place at the UN about, you know, acceptable norms for behavior in the cyberspace, etc. And you have all those discussions between states where they talk with each other and they are like, okay, what type of offensive operations are legitimate? Like, for instance, uh, espionage is okay, but destructive attacks are not okay. I mean, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is probably the, the kind of discussions that they're having. And, you know, we may have differing opinions on what types of attacks are okay and what types are not, or even if attacks are okay at all. It doesn't matter. The thing is, I do believe that... I don't think that we will ever reach an agreement there because, well, states do not have an incentive to regulate cyber offense. I think that they have an interest in having a way or having some kind of framework that allows them to still conduct operations because when they conduct operations, they know what they are winning, right? They have intelligent services that gather data, they collect it through cyber means, they take it back. And so they know that they are able to achieve certain results because they have obtain specific information and they can quantify that. On the other end, when you look at the costs of cyber offense, which means all your companies in your country that have been breached because there are no, no such norms, it's something that's super hard to quantify. You can never know that you, know, you lost some contract overseas to sell planes or to sell you know, something else because of cyber means, because it's very likely that nobody knows that the breach even happened in the first place. So the thing is, you look at the balance of risk reward for the decision makers and they see this is what we win with cyber offense, which is a lot. And what they lose is actually it's painless. And also they have no idea what it is. And so overall, I think that all those discussions that are taking place that are saying, OK, we need to make a safer Internet, blah, 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 are actually possibly being conducted in bad faith because there is no political will to actually stop doing this kind of stuff. 
this would be my unpopular opinion, especially in, in the diplomatic circles. All right. You will be tagged and we will be following the results. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm interested to see the results on this one. Yeah. It's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, I want to know as well. Cool. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge, your thoughts and your opinions with us. This was really fascinating. We will be very happy to have you again. Thanks a lot, Ivan. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, feel free to like call me up anytime. I'll be happy to be back. Thanks, Ian, for joining. It was fun co-hosting together. Yeah, thanks you guys. This was great. Bye, everyone. If you enjoyed listening at the intersection of Go and information security, stay tuned for part three. It's currently scheduled to record live on November 29th. And of course, go back and listen to part one while you're at it. That was episode number 205. Here's a sampler. The stakes have been ratcheting up. It's really easy to kind of look at it that way. And we don't want to make it like too dark or too heady, but now this is the playground of also a lot of nation states and a lot of criminals. And, you know, if you're in the, in the US, it's kind of like the ransomware epidemic is sort of unavoidable, right? Like you, you have to talk about it every day and that's where things get less pretty, right? Like if you're at a hospital that can't help folks because all of their, you know, tragically outdated Windows XP systems are in a flat network and all of them got popped at the same time. That's where you go, well, yeah, that code was fun. I love the idea of just having these, you know, kind of hacking superpowers, but there's a side to it that isn't quite so cute. Mm. And I think we're kind of walking that line all the time, right? Where you go, oh, this is fascinating. And you just get wrapped up in the functionality and what someone has been able to accomplish. And it's easy to forget like, oh, well, there's, this is actually a part of a much, much heavier game. Listen in at gotime.fm slash 205 or search Hacking with Go in your podcast app of choice. It should pop right up. Thanks once again to our partners at Fastly and Fly.io. They help make GoTime possible. And to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. GoTime's beats are dope because BMC makes dope beats. It's as simple as that. Next time on GoTime, Angelica, Natalie, and Chris welcome tech lawyer Louis Villa to the show to answer the age-old question, who owns our code? Stay tuned. I think you're going to dig it. We'll have that episode ready for you next week. Mm-hmm.